Okay, we're going to read from God's Word just now, um, and this is the book of Revelation, and it's the first chapter. We're going to break into that chapter at verse 9 and read through um, most of the rest of the chapter. So this is God's Word. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And ending at verse 19, the Lord will bless his truth uh, to our hearts. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Since as far back as I can remember, church has mattered to me. I came across a hymn written by Timothy Dwight quite a long time ago, um, and there are two verses in that hymn that really sum up for me what I feel about church. Dwight's hymn says this, I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. I guess that's how I feel about church. And I know that that is wholly uncommon. That most people don't feel like that about church for all sorts of reasons. But I was once consoled when I was reading Carol Wimber's biography of her husband, John. Uh, and in the biography, she tells a story of, of what used to happen when John worked for the church planting uh, foundation, which was part of Fuller Theological Seminary in the United States. And as part of his research, into uh, and, and church growth and church planting, he and another one of his colleagues used to visit different churches each weekend all across the United States. And the churches were from all different sorts of backgrounds, okay, as you can imagine. And they would go and they would attend Sunday worship and they would, they would maybe spend some time chatting to some of the folks worshiping there. And after every single visit to every single church in every single town, John's colleague would turn to him and say, this is a great church. If I lived in this city, I would come to this church. Didn't matter who it was, didn't matter where it was, basically every church he came across, he loved. 
And so I don't feel so alone when I read a story like that because I think here's somebody else who really likes church. And I, I love churches, and I really don't care what the badge is over the door. Presbyterian, Anglican, Vineyard, Hillsong, Baptist, I don't really care. And in coming here among you, if I'm to help and succeed in helping your leadership to lead you towards renewal and future usefulness in Christ Church, I need to convince you all that what happens to Christ Church matters, that it's important. And three Sundays later in October, uh, I can't be here the next couple of Sundays because I had prior engagements in a couple of different churches, but in the remaining three Sundays in October, I hope to talk in a bit more detail about what matters about church. But I wanted to start today by asking the simple question, why does church matter? We'll talk about what matters later, but this morning just to ask the question, why do I need to convince you if you're not already convinced that what happens to Christ church matters? Well, in one way, the answer to that question, of course, is easy, why church matters. Um, in the New Testament, the word church, if you, if you look at when it occurs, particularly in the writings of Paul, where the word church occurs, it is only ever qualified in one of two ways in the New Testament. The first way in which it is qualified is where it is found. The church in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Rome, and so on. And the other way by which it is qualified is by whose it is. You get them both, for example, when Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth. There's the two qualifiers. And they are the only two qualifiers. We shouldn't be qualifying church in any other way. We shouldn't be giving it other badges. There are only two. The first is where it is, and the second is whose it is. This is God's church, and that's why it matters. It isn't ours. I know we talk about church, so this is my church. Or would you like to come to my church this Sunday? You know, and, and, and I did it all the time when I was minister in, in, in Carn Money. I kind of referred to it as my church, but of course it's not mine. It wasn't mine. And Christ's church isn't mine. It isn't yours. It belongs to God. And in the opening sequence of the expanding vision of things which John received on the Isle of Patmos, John is gently reminded of this reality, that this is God's work. He's in exile from his beloved brothers and sisters in the church at Ephesus where he was a leader. He's on the island of Patmos and on a clear day on that island, you could see across the water to Ephesus. Part of the tribulation and trial of John's exile was that he could see the place where he most wanted to be, where the people whom he loved were, but he couldn't be there. And so God reminds him and us in this book, the final book of the scripture, he reminds him and us why the church in the seven cities of what we now call Turkey and the church meeting in Belfast Bible College matter. I want to suggest three simple things. Why does Christ church, why do these churches uh, in Asia Minor matter? First one is this. This church matters because Jesus walks among us. 
John, in his own words, says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In his isolation, he is alone, and yet here in this isolation, he hears, he hears a voice. You know how that happens. You know, I, I was down at my caravan, Castle Rock, preparing for a weekend of teaching I was doing in Port Stewart Baptist a couple of weeks ago, and I would have wandered down to the cafe in the town for lunch some days, and my, the object of the exercise was, it's, you know, it's, it's now September, nobody else is around, thank goodness, and I sit down quietly to enjoy a bite of lunch on my own, and just as I'm about to sit down to the table, I hear a voice saying, hello, John. Oh, it's just a disastrous moment. And so I do what you naturally do in those circumstances. I turned around to see who it was, and it was, it was someone that I'd known from way back when I was minister in Seaview, and there they were, there she was with her daughter, and they were touring the coast and so on. So inevitably, my quiet lunch turned into an extended conversation, which wasn't really what I'd planned. John is completely alone on the island of Patmos. He's in a spirit of worship on the Lord's day and a voice speaks to him and he does what all of the rest of us would have done in the same circumstances. He turns around to see who it is who is talking to him. And as he looks, he sees it's Jesus who is there, although he doesn't initially recognize him. But as he looks at the person speaking to him, he sees that this person, who is Jesus, is located among seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's where Jesus is. That's where John sees him, among these churches. John is not there. He is on the island of Patmos, but Jesus is there, walking among the churches. And where else would he be? Where else would you expect to find him? My brother Peter retired recently from ministry as well, and he's living with his wife down in Port Stewart. They've had a holiday home there for a number of years, and they, they, they're there. So, so if I'm down on the coast, I'll usually run over to see him, to call with them, maybe get fed and other things like that. And So I call over with them, you know. And so when I go... Um, and in some ways, I, I usually don't bother going. If it's in the evening, I don't bother going to the house because I know where he'll be. He'll be sitting on the promenade in the car downtown like all old people do, watching, watching everybody else up and down and the younger guys in pimped-out cars of various kinds raking up and down the front. I know that's where he'll be. He just loves it. And sure enough, the last night I went over to Port Stewart, I, I decided I better ring him before I go. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm down on the front. Of course he was. That's where, he, that's where you'll find him. Where would you expect to find Jesus? Where would you expect to find him? For Jesus, it was always where God's people were to be found. Where was he when he went missing as a child of 12 years of age and his parents were desperate to try and locate him? Where did they find him? They found him amongst God's people in the temple. Where else would Jesus be? And here in John's vision, he is among the churches. Now, I know that you can meet the Lord in a thousand places. I know that he dwells in all creation. I know that there is not a square foot of earth on this planet where his rip does not run and where his presence cannot be experienced. But I also know that he has uniquely promised to be here that he walks among the churches. Something is available of the Lord in the presence of his people, especially when they are at worship, which is not to be found anywhere else in the world. 
something about that. And if we are to draw people to Christ in our ministry as the people of this church, then one of the ways that has to be happening is in this space at this time. It's what it's for. There's a unique promise around this gathering. And we need to lean into that promise. I said earlier, I used to teach here. I taught here for about 12 years. I taught church history to degree students in the college. And over the years, I, I taught quite a lot, a lot of students. Some who ended up in ministry and missionaries and all sorts of other things. One of the students that I taught here ended up working in a, in a Christian bookshop in Belfast part-time uh, after he graduated. And a few years ago, I was in the bookshop one day, and, and he said to me, John, you never guess what has happened. I said, what is it, Campbell? He said, my brother and his wife are going to your church. I said, oh, that, that's good. Did they come from another church? No, no, he said, they haven't been going to church at all. That's what's so exciting about it. And they're going to your church. And so I said, okay, that, that, that's really good. So I'll try and figure out who they were. Actually, it wasn't that difficult because the two brothers looked like peas in a pod. So the next Sunday at church, I looked around and I could spot them right away without even having to try. And I went to speak to them after service. I called around to see them and uh, they had a small family. And, uh, and I, I said, you know what, what brought you to church? And their story was that they, they, they had a couple of girls and the girls went to the girls' brigade in our church. But... The, um, the parents that didn't come to church at all. And then the girls' brigade did a special Christmas event. It was a Christmas kind of musical thing, um, underneath the shining star or something like that it was called. It wasn't that amazing, if I'm honest. But anyway, being the girls' brigade and being all these kids, okay, like all their parents and all their grannies and granddads and everybody else, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, everybody was there. The church was bummed. There was about 700 people at this event. And amongst the people at the event was, was, were the parents of these two girls. And they came along, and it was, a, it was, an evening, it was, it was a kind of a Christmas story woven around modern uh, contemporary worship. And it, it was really well done. It included dance and songs and, and other sorts of things like that. It, 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 was actually, it, it, was actually, it was actually really good. But at, uh, so they came along, and they watched, and they really enjoyed the event. Um, and when, at the end of the evening, when they came out of the church building, out into the car park, they looked at each other and they said, well, what was that in there? And they, they couldn't figure it out. They said, there's something special about that place. And we made a decision, he said, there and then, that we would start going back to worship in that building. Over time, they came on our Alpha course, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when they did, they realized that what they had experienced at that gathering, the first night they were there, was the presence of God, and they'd never experienced it in their lives before. And it drew them to Christ, drew them to church. Jesus walks among us. That's why this matters. Because this is a place where other people can be drawn into the presence of God, find out what it means to follow Christ. Jesus walks among us. Second thing is that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. To John, the Lord Jesus gives a letter for each of the seven churches, the seven that we mentioned, okay? Now, probably they each heard each other's letter, all right? Because the seven churches are listed in a way in which a messenger traveling from Patmos would have circulated around them. That's the way the road would have taken you around the seven churches in the order that you read about them in Revelation chapter 1, okay? And, and the messenger had one document, obviously, not seven, 
We call that document the book of Revelation, and he would have read the whole document in each of the seven churches. So each of them got to hear what Jesus said to all the others. And in each letter, the same phrase is to be found at least once, and in three cases, twice. For example, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2, in the letter there we read in verse 2, Jesus says, I know your deeds. Jesus sees what they're doing, bad and good. And then something else in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander. Jesus also sees their circumstances and their needs. He is the God who sees. I don't know if you know the modern oratorio by, or, uh, by Kathy, Kathy Lee Gifford and Nicole C. Mullen. It's called The God Who Sees. Um, it tells the story of the experiences of various biblical characters, starting with Hagar. You can, you can watch it on YouTube. If you just go onto YouTube and search for The God Who Sees, it'll come up. It's, it's a beautifully recorded video. It lasts about 12 minutes. And, and, and in this, Nicole sings this song entitled The God Who Sees. And it begins with the story of Hagar and moves on to various other biblical characters. And Hagar, if you remember the story, finds herself alone and completely destitute. And the song says this, she's crying in the desert. She's lost in her despair. She thinks nobody loves her. Hagar thinks nobody's there. But God says, I will be a ring of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. And the power of my presence will bring her to her knees, and I will lift her up again, for I am the God who sees. The God who is among us knows. He sees. And you might think, well, like John, you're stating the blindingly obvious here, because if he's present, obviously he sees. Well, not necessarily so. Um, when my wife was alive on Mondays, we often looked after a couple of our grandchildren, and uh, we would go out with them, take them various places, including to the park. I have to tell you, I hate the park. My, my, one of my daughters is here. She can testify to the fact that throughout her upbringing and the, the, the other three siblings in my family, if I could possibly resist going to the park, I always did, okay? So we would take a couple of our grandchildren there, and one, one Monday we took two of my grandchildren to the park in Carrickfergus down at the front. And uh, so the, the kids were, were playing. Lucy was climbing up the kind of rope climbing frame thing and Caleb was on the swings or something like that. And um, so I was supposed to be watching them, all right? Uh, and my wife, Christine, was there. And actually, Hannah was there that day too. So, but I was supposed to be playing my part in watching them. And then what actually happened was, and this was taken a photograph of and subsequently posted to Facebook, and I've never been allowed to forget it. At one stage of the day, this was a Monday morning, I'd, been, I'd preached three times the day before, I was knackered. And at one stage, while I was supposed to be watching my grandchildren, I fell asleep on a bench. <laughs> I was actually asleep, okay? And my daughter kind of took a photograph of it and immediately posted it to Facebook. So what you would know is never entrust me with your grandchildren under any circumstances. It wouldn't be a good idea, all right? So, um, so I was there, okay, and I was meant to be watching, but actually I didn't, see, I didn't see what Lucy and Caleb did for maybe five or ten minutes. Jesus is among us, but he's not asleep on the bench. Scripture says he sees, he knows. And when you're alone, that matters. 
I don't know your personal circumstance or the personal circumstances of others in your friendship circle. But almost certainly there are people in this building or watching online right now or people whom you could invite to be here who do feel alone and who need to see, who need to know that somebody sees and somebody knows. Since my wife passed away, I spend quite a lot of time with widows and widowers. I, I, I kind of, it's quite, quite good because there's so much you don't have to explain when, when you're with somebody else who's been through your circumstances. And I was with uh, a, a widower, a, a man called Ian, who's roughly my age, whose who's, um, wife died in similar circumstances to mine. And we meet every month or so just for a cup of coffee. And I was with him the other day. I had the privilege of bringing him and his wife in a membership in our church um, about six months or so before she passed away and they, they, they came to know Christ as their Savior. And it was just, it was just a lovely thing. And they, they were actually at communion just uh, for the first time, really, just a matter of, of weeks before Liz died. And uh, I, I meet with Ian and we were chatting the other day and he was a bit down. And he, he said to me, he said, I don't, I don't know how you have faith now. He said, how, how, you know, how does your faith even work in this circumstance? How, how can you be who you are? And, do what you do and say what you say. He said, I, I, I don't get it. My response to that is because I don't understand what happened. But I know somebody who knows. And I know somebody who sees. And it makes all the difference in the world. And John sees Jesus who is among God's people. But he also sees a Jesus who sees us. And that's why this place matters too that this is a place where people can discover that there is someone who actually knows, knows their circumstance, knows their pain, knows their need. Somebody cares eternally. And that's why this place matters, because there are people who need to know that. And finally, the Jesus who walks among us and who sees us is the Jesus who addresses us. John hears a voice. He turns to see who it is. And he sees Jesus. But not like he has ever seen Jesus before. What he sees sucks all the air out of his lungs. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. He speaks talks to John. And his intention is to say an awful lot more. And he tells John to write down what he's going to say for the sake of the churches, for us. And that's amazing in itself. Not, mind you, that the book is easy to understand. I'm always consoled by the fact that John Calvin, um, the reformer, uh, who had an incredible teaching and writing ministry uh, as part of what he did in, in, uh, in the Reformation of the Church in Geneva. He preached on every single book of the Bible and wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. And he said he didn't do that because he didn't have the key to understand it. That always makes me feel good. If John Calvin couldn't understand it, then I don't feel so bad about the fact that I don't understand it either, really. But I don't doubt if anybody really does fully. But here was this... Here were these things that Jesus was revealing. John was asked to write them down and to, to place them in a position where they would be of help to the churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and so on, and also to us. 
But here's the thing. It's, it's really special that we have the scriptures. They are God's word to us. But wouldn't you have liked to have heard that voice for yourself? However amazing it is to have the text in your hand, wouldn't you like to hear the voice? And God still speaks. What authority do I have for saying that? I think back over the years of preaching in church or leading an alpha course. I couldn't tell you how many times over those years the people who mostly were not Christians when they came into an act of worship or started out in an alpha course would have a conversation with me at some point after a while and, and they would all say exactly the same thing. They would say, how did you know all those things about me? Sitting in a sermon and time and time again people have said to me, it felt to me like I was the only person in the building. Nobody else was here. This was for me. This was a direct word for me. How did you know that? Well, the simple answer to the question, of course, was that I didn't know it. And that though I was speaking, they weren't hearing me speaking. They were hearing someone else altogether. They were hearing the voice of God himself. The Holy Spirit was at work. God was speaking. And he still speaks. But if we are not careful, we will lose the capacity to hear him. And, and that's really important. Jesus repeats the message about hearing seven times. Once in each of the letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You need to hear me speaking, Jesus said. That's the reason why I'm talking. I need you to listen and I need you to hear. But we are not used to the interruption of the Spirit's voice. And if we're not careful, we can get to a point where we no longer hear that voice. And the powerful word of God no longer stirs something new inside of us. That's a really sad moment. But it's true, we, we, we become bound up with a book and we don't realize that that book is a tool by which as we study it and, and look into it and hear it preached and proclaimed, that what we're actually listening for is for God speaking afresh to us in that moment. We're not used to that. One of my members in, in, in the church uh, did a lot of traveling around and he used to listen to audio books in the car and he gave me one on one time. He said, you should listen to this in the car. It's really good. So I thought I'd put it on. It's by a really well-known, popular modern author. It's a very, very good book. And I, I popped a, the CD into the car. When I was driving around, I would listen to it. Do you know what I discovered? I discovered that I could have been listening to it for half an hour. At the end of the half an hour, I couldn't tell you a single thing that I heard in, in that but if I had had the book in my hand, sitting at home in a chair, I could have remembered virtually everything I would have read. This was not the way in which I normally digested that kind of writing. And so I, I found the audio book just simply didn't work for me. And I, I've never tried one since, if I'm being honest. I, I'd rather have a book in my hand. If I'm absolutely pushed, I'll work with a Kindle, but I'd rather really have paper and print. Because there's something about it, and I can listen, and I can hear. And sometimes, you know, we get like, we can get like that too with the scriptures. You know, we get that, and we have our devotions day by day, or we come to church, and we read a text, and that's okay. But actually, we're meant to be doing another form of listening as well. Beyond the grammatical sense of this text that I have in my hand is the voice of the living God. And wouldn't you want to hear that voice? 
not, not just read it on paper, but when you want to hear that voice speaking into your circumstance and telling you what God's concern is for you, what you need to know of him and what you need to know about yourself. And this is the place where Jesus is among us. And this is the place where Jesus sees us. And this is the place where Jesus addresses us himself by the power of the Spirit. And that's why this matters. That's my dream for here. As Stephen said a moment or two ago, no conclusions have been drawn, no decisions have been made. I barely, I haven't even started dipping into the database yet, never mind anything else. But for me, not, not predetermining any decisions of the future about what happens to the shape of this place, but for me, this place matters. This place matters because Jesus walks among us, Jesus sees us, and Jesus addresses us. And the people who are sitting here and watching online right now, along with all the other people we could invite to become a part of who we are, need those three things. They need to experience the presence and the care and the voice of our master. And that's why this matters. I'm going to use a prayer to include our worship, which kind of stems out of some of the things we've been thinking about this morning. Um, after my wife passed away, I was kind of clearing up some of the stuff that she had. And over the years in ministry, she must have led, I don't know how many hundred women's meetings, which she always hated doing. She never thought she was qualified to do. She hated upfront stuff. Um, and what I've discovered was someone I didn't really know that much, which was that she had over the years kept notebooks. And in a notebook, she had written every prayer that she had ever used to lead a meeting. And there was one of the prayers that was on a kind of slip of paper, fell out of a book. And I found it, and in some ways, I've, I, I kind of framed it, put it up on the wall at home, and it says so much about her faith, I think, and so much about what I also believe about church and about um, who the Lord is. I'm going to use the prayer that she wrote to conclude our worship. Um, the prayer begins with a quote from a, a song uh, which came out a number of years ago, um, and uh, it, it's a hymn. It starts with that, and then it goes into a prayer. And um, I'd like us to use these words as a way to respond to what we've been thinking about in worship. So let's pray. God is here as we, his people, meet to offer praise and prayer. May we find in fuller measure what it is in Christ we share. Here, as in the world around us, all our varied skills and arts with the coming of his spirit into open minds and hearts. We thank you, our Father, for your readiness to hear and to forgive and for your great love to us in spite of our unworthiness. We thank you for the many blessings we enjoy which are above our deserving, hoping, or asking. You have been so good to us in our ingratitude and forgetfulness of you. For your patience, gentleness, and constancy, we bow our heads just now in humble thankfulness of heart. We have come to worship you who are infinite love, infinite compassion and infinite power, the same yesterday, today and forever. Accept our praise and worship, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you all, guys. God bless. Father God, we thank you for this, this community, this group of people who are meeting here this morning, um, both physically and virtually. 
We thank you that you have brought us together from many different backgrounds, uh, many different experiences of life, of faith, of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in this land at this time. Father, we thank you for your hand uh, upon us. We thank you for your spirit with us. Yeah. Um, and we thank you for John who has come and um, is providing um, a breath of fresh air in many different ways. Um, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray for him this morning that you'll uh, enable him to, um, to encourage us and challenge us, um, to build us up and to break us down where we need uh, to be changed. Yeah. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you will speak to um, your church here in Christ Church here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Wait one minute just till I get back. Okay. You take your time, Andrew. Man like you shouldn't be rushing. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. Those of you in the room and those of you on Zoom, it's nice to be here. I always love that thing that techies do. You know, they say, I'm just going to make this really simple for you. So you just add my email address to your safe list, and everybody's going, safe list? What's, what's a safe list? I don't have a, do I have a safe list? Anyway, okay, brilliant, Andrew, brilliant. So, um, and yes, a photograph would be amazing, because I, I, I called three people the wrong name this morning, and that, that's only at the start of the service. Dear knows what I'll do afterwards. That would be really cool. If you could uplo upload a photograph, that would be great. Um, and it's kind of strange this morning because, in a way, um, Willem at the start of worship quoted those, that translation of Eugene Peterson about needing rest and so on. I've had a really busy week. I did a wedding, and I spoke on four other occasions before I got here this morning. Three of those were at a weekend I've just been, I've, I've just been involved in. And I was that far gone on Friday night that I left the conference and I went on my way home. I went into Tesco's to do a bit of shopping. I went all the way around Tesco's and arrived at the till and realized I still had my name badge from the conference on, which was a bit embarrassing because we've been all the way around the shopping. And I was talking to a friend about it. She says, John, you do realize everybody probably thinks you've just come from a speed dating night. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the way my week has been, so if, if your week's been like mine, I'm hoping this is a moment of refreshment and renewal for us all. We're going to read from Acts chapter 2. This is a really well-known uh, passage. Uh, we're, we're just immediately after the experience of the Holy Spirit being given to the church on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to break into Acts chapter 2 at verse 42. This is God's Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're thinking a little bit over these Sundays, last Sunday, today, and next Sunday, about uh, being renewed as a church. I, I think from the conversations I've had in the short time that I've, I've been among you, um, I've had lots of conversations which tend to suggest that everybody here thinks this is a, a moment for us as a fellowship, that we need to make some important decisions, and an awful lot depends on what those decisions are. 
uh, and what the future looks like. So it's, it's an important moment. And so we've been thinking a bit about what it means to be renewed as a church. Last Sunday, we thought about what it would mean to be renewed in our worship. And then today, we're going to look at the fact that if we are to be the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be renewed in our existence as a community. And it's really interesting, in that passage we read just a few moments ago, in the aftermath of the day of Pentecost, Dr. Luke, who's writing the story in the book of the Acts, coins a word for the essence of community. It occurred three times in those verses. And I've been struck by the fact that over the last few Sundays that although the guys leading worship, they knew what passage I was preaching on, they had no idea what I was going to say. It's been incredible how they have picked up the themes even before I got a chance to mention them because early on in one of the songs that, uh, that uh, Willem has just led us in, this word occurred prominently in the song. It is the word together. It occurs three times in the passage, together. That's the word Luke says that kind of typifies what Christian community means. Let me illustrate it like this. A number of years ago, um, I realized that I wasn't getting any younger and that as I got older, I was acquiring something I'd never had in the earlier days of my life, which was a little bit of weight. And so I thought I needed to do something. I had no regular exercise in my life um, because I wrecked both my knees in a motorcycle accident many years ago. I can't run. I hate swimming unless it's in the sea and that's a bit awkward to do when you live in Belfast. So I thought, what can I do? I'll take up cycling. As it happened, at the same time, a number of others in, in the church, other guys in church were taking up cycling. So we thought it'd be a good idea to get a bit of training. So we went to Madigan Cycle Club in Carrick, and they took us out for three Saturdays in a row and taught us basically how to look after ourselves on a bike. And it was really interesting from lots of points of view. But for me, it was fairly challenging. Okay, so the second day that we're out, we rode all the way from Carrick right down to Carnfunnock, uh, if you know it, along the coast, all right? And uh, you have to understand that before this point in time, the furthest I'd been in the bike was five miles. So this was massive for me. And when we were coming through Larne, I cramped up really badly. And I had to stop and get off the bike. And uh, one of the guys from the club, our instructors, if you like, stopped with me. And uh, he, said, uh, he said, what have you got in that water bottle? I thought the answer to that question is relatively straightforward. What would be in a water bottle? But water, I said, I've got water. And oh no, he said, that's no good, that's no good. Pour it out. So I, I poured it out. And he poured into it a, a strangely colored liquid. Now he said, drink that. So I drank a few mouthfuls. No, he said, drink about half of it. So I did, and uh, that was okay. I'm, I was able to get back on the bike. And we rode all the way to Carnfonic, and I, I felt pretty good, you know. And we're sitting down here, and we're enjoying a Mars bar and whatever. And, chatting and talking, but then it dawned on me, I have got to get back. I wonder, do I have the energy to get back? So uh, we were chatting and talking about this, and eventually the guy who had helped me, had come off the bike, had helped me to get there, I said to him quietly, I said, to, like it's, you know, it's about 10 or 12 miles back, do you think I'll be able to make it? He said, we have a rule in the cycling club Everybody who comes out with us, we get home. That's community. Everyone who comes out with us, we get home. That's what community looks like. And in a way, that's what we're thinking about. That's what Dr. Luke's word together means. It means a group of people who get each other home. 
And I want to look just quickly at some of the things that, that he says here about that togetherness. You notice, first of all, in the text that what he says is that, first of all, this community of the church is together in need. We are together in need. Need is all around us. The point is that uh, it's not only in the obvious places where you think you see it. Sometimes it's in places covered up and you don't realize it's there. In our, in our church, amongst other things, we ran a uniform ministry where we supplied school uniforms to families who couldn't afford it. And most years, we would have supplied 70 to 80 families with a full set of uniforms, and if they needed it, sports gear and everything else as well. And uh, there was a, a free phone number that you could ring, and uh, you left a message there. It was entirely confidential, and at some point in the next few days, someone called at the door of your house with what you needed. And uh, I had a member of my congregation who had a serious motorcycle accident, and he was in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. And uh, he was in intensive care, and I went to visit him one day. And when I came in, I was sitting chatting with him for a while. And then the nurse who was in intensive care, there's usually a nurse specifically allocated to each patient, and the nurse who was with my friend came over, and she said, who's this? And he said, well, it's my minister. And she said, are you from Carnmoney Church? I said, yeah, you, I, need, I need to talk to you. She said, I need to say a really big thank you to you. I said, oh, why do you need to say thank you to me? Well, she said, um, turned out she was a Christian. She said, uh, my husband left me about 18 months ago. And she said, I've got two young kids. And uh, she said, to be honest with you, it's been such a struggle for me. Now, this is a highly qualified professional person working in a really significant job in a hospital. And she said, a friend of mine told me that your church had a school uniform uh, ministry. And she said, I rang the ministry. And she said, last week, somebody arrived at my door with two sets of school uniforms and some other things. And she said, getting those uniforms last week meant that I was able to feed my kids. You would have looked at that girl and you would never have thought that that was a situation of need. But it was. And there is need all around us. And the reality is that in the church of Jesus Christ, it should not be so among us. All the believers were together, Luke says, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, when we read these verses, they're a bit scary, okay? I get that. Because our tendency when we read these verses is to emphasize the second part, the part about the shared resources. And that brings the hairs up on the back of your neck. You can think, really? I have to share my car with somebody? I, you know, I have to sell things I own? And um, yes, sometimes those things are required. And all sorts of questions come in around them about how should we respond to this and what should we be doing when we are in the, world, in the terms of this world, a relatively well-off group of people. Many of those questions are legitimate, but sometimes I think our concentration on the second part of that sentence conveniently allows us to miss the first part of the sentence, which is actually the real challenge. The real challenge is about the first part. Our struggles over this passage are not about money or possessions. They are about not really being together in the first place. 
It's the together thing that's the challenge. I don't know, I don't know anything about climbing, okay? I admire people who do it. I think it's incredible. The bravery and courage, you know, to go up a sheer rock face with a few kind of metal pins nailed into the rock. And I, I don't know how anybody does it. It's incredible. But one of the things I notice if you watch television programs about climbers, if they're climbing in a group, they're always roped together. And it means if one person falls, there's a massive danger because the one person who falls could pull all the others with them. But there's also the possibility that if one person falls, the others take the strain and their life is saved. And that's what it means to be together. It's like a group of climbers roped together. If one falls, the others take the strain and hold them up. And that's what this passage is really saying. Forget about the money and the possessions part. Stop getting all screwed up and worried about that. Think about the together part. Are we actually like those climbers in the first place, or are we not? Are we truly together? Because that's what it means to be community. The conference I was working at over the weekend, there was a, a minister there from Scotland who leads the organization who were running the event, and um, I, uh, we were chatting and talking at different times over the weekend. As I walked past him, his laptop was open, on the, on, on, on the, his, his kind of splash screen on his laptop was a picture, obviously, of his family. There was him and his wife, and there were two looked like grown-up boys in the photograph. And I said, is that your family? And he said, well, that's my wife. And he said, that's my son, my younger son. And he said, that's the boy who lives with us. And uh, he said, he works in a really, he's, he's, he's planted three churches in Glasgow. And all of those churches have been planted in really difficult areas of Glasgow. And the one that he's currently working in, which is the third of those churches, is in a particularly hard area. And this 16-year-old lad has been living now with his wife and his two sons for about a year. His family situation is dreadful. His friends are all the wrong friends. And they've taken him into their home. And he lives with them. And he said, it's a nightmare. He is basically feral. And he said, you know, he doesn't do times to come in or times to get up in the morning or anything else. And, and he said, uh, COVID uh, has been a nightmare because the schools have closed down. And so he said, he, he's getting himself into all the wrong kind of company, which he wouldn't be in if he was at school. And he said, it, it, it's been a nightmare. But he said, we've committed to this young lad and we're going to try to see if we can help him. That's what it looks like to be together. And that's what Luke is saying to us. This is the body of Christ. This is not a collection of disembodied limbs and organs. This is a body. It is a connected reality. And if you think about your own life, how that connection works... You know, sometimes when I cycle, I do get really bad cramp. I don't have to be cycling to get cramp. I can get in bed at night. And it's a nightmare, and it's really sore when it comes. And it's usually in, 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 in the ball of my leg at the back. And if I'm on the bike, I never really want to stop. So I keep riding. But what I do is I, I, I put my hand down, and I kind of massage the back of my leg while I'm riding. And usually that helps. So when one part of the body gets in trouble, what do you do? Another part of the body aims to sort it out. 
That's what it means to be together. We are together in need. There's need all around us. It doesn't always appear on the surface. But people who are together will be there in that need for whoever it is. Together in need, that's the first thing. Second thing is to be together in person. To be together in person. Um, I went to a concert last night. Our, our venue downtown in Belfast, um, where, uh, where Central meets um, in the old May Street Church, um, one of the things that we do there is we make the church available for, uh, as an arts venue, and there are small concerts held there in Belfast. There are large venues, and they're very, very small venues. There's nothing kind of in between. But that church building kind of facilitate on the ground floor about 200 to 300 people. Um, well, once the COVID regulations disappeared. Well, and, and so it's an ideal venue. The acoustics are amazing. The Victorians knew how to build buildings that had really good acoustics. And so it's amazing, especially for, especially for acoustic music. And I went to a concert there last night by a young American um, folky country kind of singer. And uh, it, it, was, it was amazing, really enjoyed the night. It was fantastic. Um, but I, I watched some videos of her on YouTube before I went because I didn't know her. I didn't know her music. It's just my son thought that I would probably like it. And so that was okay. And, and so I listened to a few videos before I went, and they were really good, but I can tell you now, they were nothing like being in the room when she picked that guitar up, open-tuned it, and then played it. It was amazing. And however good a hi-fi you have at home, it, nothing comes close to a live performance, to being in the room with somebody. And that's what Luke is talking about here. He says in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together, there's that word again, in the temple courts. They were together in person. Now, I'm not getting at anybody who's on Zoom this morning. We're glad that you're there, okay? But talking in the round about what church is meant to be, we all accept we're living in exceptional circumstances right now. But what is part of our togetherness? Part of our togetherness is being together in person. And Jesus started this, didn't he? He gave himself to 12 people in particular, and he spent three years with them. He barely left them alone during that time. They ate together, they walked together, they worked together, they slept together. He was with them in person all the time. And he called them into that kind of community. And because he was with that 12 in particular, it meant that for him to be with them, they had to be together as well. Which meant they couldn't be with others. Andrew and Peter, James and John, left the family business to follow Jesus. They beached their boats. This is what Luke says. They beached their boats, left everything, and followed Christ. To be together with him, they couldn't be together with some other people. That was the way that it works. A little wonder, therefore, that the New Testament uses intimate words to describe the togetherness we have in the church. One of them is in this passage. The word that is translated fellowship, which is a word that occurs fairly often in the New Testament, referring to the community of the church, that is a really intimate word that normally applies to the relationship between a husband and a wife. Fellowship. This is like the partnership. The togetherness we experience in church is meant to be like the partnership of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a togetherness 
that we share, which is a togetherness in person. We need to be together as people. Now, I know that we apply that sense of intimacy to our relationship with Jesus. That we have a, a relationship with him which is, which is meant to be open and full and free. But the point is, we don't relate to Jesus in isolation. It's not just Jesus and me. It's always Jesus and us. And that's the only basis on which he relates to us. He doesn't offer us some kind of, you know, one or two of us get the special privilege we get face to face and nobody else does. It's always Jesus and us. And that means that our relationship with him cannot be in isolation. It can only be together. One of the greatest privileges of my life was my 19 years in Kernmoney. At a time in life when I was a, it was a, it was a young man's job, like, you know, not a man my age's job, the energy and all the rest of it required to keep sharp, keep ahead of all of these sharp young people. Believe me, it, it takes a lot out of you. But I come out of my office on a Sunday morning at 25 past nine to walk downstairs to the coffee bar for the 9.30 worship. And the place was a buzz with conversation. So many people there, seats were right out into the corridor, right out to the front doors of the halls complex. Couldn't get them all into the coffee bars, but 150 people there. There's kids all over the place. There's noise. You know, I can't get to the front without having five or ten conversations with people on the way up. And then we finish that, and half an hour later, I walk into the other venue, and there's 600 people there, and all the kids and family that they have with them. There's a buzz of excitement. All these faces, I look around, and unlike your faces, some of which I've only seen half-masked, I knew virtually every single one of them. I could name them all. They knew me. We were together in person. That's what it means to be community. It's what it means to be church. And sometimes we, we miss the awe and wonder of it, of these faces that you've worshipped God with. Some of you have worshipped God for the whole 20 years or so of the life of this fellowship and you've seen these faces nearby you on a Sunday. Others have come more recently. Others like me are completely new blow-ins. No, virtually no one. But look at these faces. Look at these people. This is the body of Christ. You know, that thing that sometimes babies do, you know, when they're young. It's one of those things that my wife used to love when our children were growing up. Is that moment when a child notices its hand for the first time. You know? He's kind of sitting there, whoa, what was that that just went past my face? And then they look at it, and they study it. And, and you'd think that they were looking at some incredibly amazing, wonderful creation. What on earth is that amazing thing there that I'm looking at? It's my hand. And that's kind of how we should be looking at each other. We are the body of Christ. We look around the room, we look at faces, we look at people, and we should be thinking, whoa. I get to do life with these guys. I get to do church with these guys. Because to do church is to be together in person. That's who we are. When we are going to take communion in a minute or two, I know, well, I, I don't know, because I've never done communion with you before. It's going to be a new experience for me. But I'm guessing that you're like virtually every other fellowship I've ever had communion in, which is when we come to the bread and wine bit, everybody closes their eyes and bows their heads. And we take it like this is a solitary, alone thing. I'm here with God, and this is it. I want you to try something a bit different this morning. 
why don't you keep your eyes open and look around you? Because in your hands, you have the symbols of the body of Christ. But you are sitting in the body of Christ. You are looking at the body of Christ all around this room. So why don't you keep your eyes open today? Have a look around you. Together in person. Finally, together in devotion. Being together to follow our love is a common human phenomenon. I don't know whether I should mention rugby this morning because I'm guessing the Ulster rugby guys are going to be in mourning, so I, I, I didn't mention rugby, okay. I can't mention football either because my son-in-law sports at Lens and he didn't have a good day yesterday. Uh, but you know what I mean? When we love something, we like to go to it together. You know, it might just be four friends on a golf course. Why anybody wants to play that game, I have no idea. But anyway, whatever it is, okay, if you love something, then you want to be with it together with other people who love it too. And we have that in church. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Ate together, there's that word again. Ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. When you love something or someone, you love to be together to celebrate that person or that thing. Last Tuesday would have been my wife, my wife Christine's birthday. So on Tuesday evening, the, my four children and myself got together with a caterpillar birthday cake from Marsh and Spencer's. And we cut the cake and we had a little bit of celebration together and we told stories and we remembered. Because that's what you do. For birthdays, you all get together, you know, because that's what it feels like. You love the person, whoever it is, whose birthday it is. You come with gifts and presents, and uh, you tell stories, and you remember. And Jesus gave us a meal to do this very thing. Jesus says, I'll, I'll say these words in a moment or two. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And when we read those words, the English language gives us a problem. Because in the English language, when, when you say, you do this, the word you could be singular, you could be talking to one person, or it could be plural, you could be talking to everybody in the room. In the Greek language in which the New Testament is written, you always know whether the word you is singular or plural, because it's a different form of the word. But in English, it's not. It's the same word. And so we often read these texts and we read the word you as if it were singular. But many, many times in the New Testament, it's not. It's plural. It's referring to everyone. And in, when Jesus said these words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. It's not singular. It's plural. When you all, in fact, we, the, the Ulster colloquialism would be a good use in the New Testament. It should say use when Jesus said, when you drink it, remember me. Communion is a community activity. The clue is in the word. Communion is a community activity. It's something you can only do with other people. We do it together. I love the Lord. I want to do this, but so do you. Some of you maybe love the Lord more than me. For him, you've given up more than I've ever given up. You've served longer than I've served. You've asked him for less than I've asked him for. But here in this place, it makes no difference. It's all of us 
together we are all part of the devoted community. We share one thing in common. There may be loads of other things that we do not have in common, but we share one thing together in common. In this room and on Zoom this morning, we are devoted to Christ. We love the Lord. That's why we're here. And what we are about to do in his company is you plural. It's yous, not you. We are together in our devotion. The word together. Together in need. When we're truly together, the need thing will never be an issue because we will respond to it without a second thought. Together in person. We need to see one another's faces. We need to gather like this and make a habit of it because this is the body of Christ. We need to see that body manifest. We are together in devotion. We love the Lord, and it doesn't matter whether some of us love him more than others. It's our love for him that brings us here. Why does this matter? Because we can be church without getting excited about community, can't we? We can do the stuff we do. We can get on with things. Why does this actually matter? It's really interesting that after, after Luke, Dr. Luke deals with all this, the next sentence says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sometimes we think we're not seeing people come to faith in Christ. We're not impacting the community out there outside us because there's something wrong with our evangelism. And that could be true. But actually, Dr. Luke is hinting at the fact here that what might really be the problem is not so much our evangelism, but the community we do or don't have in the church. Would anybody want to belong to this? Would anybody see among us here something they don't see out there in the world that would make them hunger for that and want to be a part of it? And then maybe if we want to make a real impact on the community in which we're based here, on the world outside us, the network of friends that we have, if we want to make a real impact on them, maybe what we actually need to do is ask God the Holy Spirit to come and form among us a community that everybody else will want to belong to because we are actually together. So before we come now in a moment or two to lift the bread and the wine into our hands and to eat and drink it together at the table of the Lord, have you done anything to hurt this community? Is there somebody here you need to apologize to? Is there somebody here you need to, need, you need to make the offer of help to? Is there somebody here that uh, you need to share a bit more with and be more open with? Is there some way that because of the things we do as individuals, we can be more together as the people of God? Because if there is, this might be a moment to do it, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world for which Jesus died and the generation we need to win. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we thank you and bless you for what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And we confess that we have no right to be here, that all is only of your grace and your love and mercy in Jesus. We give you thanks, O oh God, for all that he has done for us. We thank you for this community of your people. 
We bless you, Lord, for how you called them together. And we thank you for all that you've been seeking to do in them and through them over the years. But at this particular moment of time, Lord, we pray for a new spirit of togetherness. Open our hearts, not just to you, but to one another. Help us, O oh God, in this place to experience what the love of Christ looks like in the faces and the responses of the other people in your body. And then take us, Lord, broken and sinful though we are, take us and mold us in such a way that we will become an effective instrument of witness here and wherever we go. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to, as a response to what I've been thinking about, and actually the way that this fell for us. Okay, we're going to read from God's Word. This is Acts chapter 1, beginning to read at the first verse, and just reading the first eight verses of Dr. Luke's introduction to uh, the second part of his book about the Lord Jesus. The first part is the gospel. The second part is the, the book we call the book of the Acts. And uh, this is how Dr. Luke begins that book. This is God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And ending at verse 8, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. As Josh said, said right at the very beginning when he was introducing our worship, we've been reflecting for the past few weeks on what church is. And I've been suggesting to you that church is where we are together with God in worship. That was the first thing. It's also where we are together with each other in deep community. And then the last essential feature in this series, Church 101, the absolute basics and essentials of being and doing church. Part three is this, that the church is where we are together with the world in witness. These essential aspects of church, without which there is no true church, represent three movements in us, or more specifically, three movements of the Holy Spirit through us. The Holy Spirit's movement upwards towards God, his movement inwards towards each other, and his movement outwards towards the world. 
And those three aspects are the essential nature of what it means to be church. And today, we're thinking about the final one, which is witness. I was speaking a few weeks ago um, at the Crown Jesus Session uh, Conference for Evangelists. And uh, at the coffee break, there was a, a woman there that I know really well. And she's a really gifted evangelist. She works uh, in a, a Baptist church not far from where I was uh, previously in Kernmoney. And we got to chatting uh, over coffee, trying to find out what she'd been doing with herself. She's a complete bundle of energy, nonstop, 24-7. complete nightmare, I'm sure, to be her pastor. But I'm not her pastor, so that's okay. And um, she told me a story. Uh, I was asking her about their food bank because during lockdown, obviously when they weren't able to worship, their kind of community-based ministries really expanded. She's their, their CAP representative, so she runs the CAP ministry, but also she had kind of uh, started a small food bank in the Newton Abbey Food Bank, which, which we, we were kind of the lead church in. We were supplying her with food, and she was opening the church halls, and they were feeding a number of people during lockdown. And amongst the people that they were feeding was a man who lived just a few doors from the church. He never came to church. In fact, before lockdown, they didn't know him at all. He was an alcoholic. And they were taking food over to him during that time so, so that he would be able to eat. And when the uh, uh, regulations around COVID started to be relaxed and people were able to come back to church again, one Sunday morning, he arrived at the door of the church and uh, he came in to come to worship, and there were two people on the welcome team at the door, and one of them was a woman, and he approached the woman, and he, she welcomed him to church, and he quietly said to her, he said, am I clean enough to come in? She answered the question by throwing her arms around him. In one sense, I could leave you with that story, and I've told you everything you need to know about witness in that story. Because in that story, you find exactly what Jesus himself actually did. He touched lepers. He welcomed children. He allowed a despised woman to anoint his feet with priceless perfume and a rich man to give him his grave. It's what he did. It's, it's who he was. And it is our job to witness to this same Jesus. And to me, I believe this is our most pressing calling right now in the church. I know that all around us in the evangelical world, voices are urging us to engage in cultural warfare. We want to take the world on. I think we have a story to tell and a hope to model. Jesus didn't call us to be advocates. Do you seriously think the Holy Spirit needs our help? He called us to be witnesses. And in doing that, I believe we will save our generation, not by arguing, but by putting our arms around unclean people in Jesus' name. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. And we need to talk about this. We need to talk about how much winning people to faith in Jesus Christ, embracing people and welcoming them in is who we are and what we do. Because we're really bad about talking about it. I sat at the General Assembly in my own denomination just a matter of weeks ago. I sat through the missionary session where they present uh, our links 
and partnerships with people overseas who are either people from Northern Ireland who are working there or churches that we have partnership with. And it was a fairly lengthy session. And if I'm being really honest about it, there wasn't a huge amount to get excited about. We're talking a lot about suffering and difficulty. And of course, those things are important. Brothers and sisters of ours live in really difficult situations across the world. And then at the very end of the session, the moderator called the two people who were responsible for the presentation back up onto the stage. And he said, is there one thought you want to leave with us? And at that moment, the person in charge of, the, of our kind of missionary, the missionary arm of, of our denomination um, referred back to something that had been used earlier on. They had used a video of some children from Iran praying for people in Afghanistan in the difficult situation they find themselves in right now because of what has happened there. And referring back to that video of these Iranian children praying for the people in Afghanistan, he said, well, well the one thing that really strikes me is this, he said, in the last two years, the fastest growing church in the planet is in Iran. And I thought to myself, there's the story. There's the story. Why weren't we talking about that for the last hour? The fastest growing church in the world these last two years is in Iran. Can you believe that? There's a story of the Holy Spirit at work that we should be finding inspiration in and that we should be celebrating. We need to tell that story. And besides... Apart from the excitement of telling that story, there is the small matter that this was, according to Dr. Luke, the last command that Jesus gave. You will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Dunmurray, in Ireland, north and south, and to the ends of the earth. No, I know Jesus didn't exactly say those words. But if he had been here in the room this morning, that's how he would have put it. That's his command. So what is this witness to which we are called? What is this third essential aspect of what it means to be church? What does it look like? Well, three words. Okay, the first one is this. The word overflow. All witness begins not with us, but with the Spirit of Jesus. He has to come on us. And this is why Jesus, in the same passage, tells the disciples to wait for this anointing. We read it earlier. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, we talk a lot about evangelism strategies and programs and courses. And I believe in all those things. They're really helpful. It's essential that we sit down as church to think out what we're doing, how we're doing it, what our aims and objectives are, what we're seeking to achieve. All of that is important. And we talk a lot about that when what we need is the Holy Spirit to come upon us. You can have all the strategies you like, all the plans, and train as many people as you can. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't come, Jesus said, wait for the anointing first. Now, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples, um, he used a really strong verb. It's a verb which in another context could mean to be set upon. And this, it's interesting because when we talk about the glory of God, in, in the Hebrew language, the root idea of glory is the idea of weight, 
of heaviness, of something that is too heavy for us to carry, something that comes down upon us, and because of its weight or substance, we feel it, we experience it, we know that God is there. I remember as a child, I don't know what age I was, we were living in Derry at the time, and my dad was laying flagstones out at the side of the house. Now, my dad was many things, but a good DIY person, definitely not, okay? And anyway, being a, a laying flagstones, and I'm talking the, the big ones, you know, three feet and old money. Um, and, and so he, I was supposed to be holding the stone while he was kind of smoothing out the sand underneath to then, then set the flagstone down. And of course, the flagstone was really heavy, and I was holding and holding, and eventually got to the point I actually couldn't hold it any longer, and it slipped out of my grasp. It slipped out of my grasp and the edge of it ran the whole way down the front of his leg. You should see the mess it made of his leg. It was really painful um, and uh, it, it didn't have a good result. Uh, I don't think, I can't remember him ever asking me again to help him on a DIY project, but my problem was it was just too heavy. I, I couldn't hold it. I had to let go. And in a sense, that's what needs to happen to us. Something of the glory, of the substance of God has to fall upon us. Something we cannot control, something we cannot hold in and of ourselves has to come upon us. If the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will know about it. And it will change you. In the evangelical churches in which I grew up, the emphasis about the Holy Spirit always fell on the fact that his coming down upon a life occurred at conversion. Somebody comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into their life, and they have received the Spirit of God. And of course, that's true. There's no change in anybody's life without the work of the Holy Spirit. All of that is true. But is that actually all there is to say about the possession and experience of the Holy Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in, in, in London, used to talk about it in this way. He used to say, paraphrasing his words, but he used to say something like this. If all there is to receive of the Holy Spirit comes upon people at conversion, where is he? I mean, look at us. What do we like sometimes? We lack power. We lack insight. We lack authority. We lack strength to do what Jesus has called us to do. We need the Holy Spirit. If we got all of them that there is to have at conversion, well, it's not enough. We need something more. And if we are to be witnesses, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our lives so that that outpouring will spill over from us into the world all around the nature of the work of God is always overflowing. God never gives just enough. He always gives so much more than that. And when a spirit comes upon us, then there is what we need for strength and for faith and for love and for service. But there's more, more than we can contain. And it bubbles out into the rest of the world. And you will know about it. I believe this is a moment to seek an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon our lives. Because I believe that without that outpouring, we cannot be the witnesses Jesus has called us to be. For different people, that will look like different things. But it's what we need. Because the point about witnessing, first of all, is that witnessing is the result of an overflowing life. A life filled with, coursing with, presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask God 
for more. First thing is overflowing. But the second thing about witnessing is testimony. Jesus calls his people witnesses. Now, when we talk about witnessing, we tend to emphasize the fact that to be a witness, you need to speak. You need to tell something. And, and of course, that's, that's true. Some might object to the story that I started with uh, uh, that my friend told me about what happened at her church because they might say the kindness that that woman gave to that man needs further explanation. She needed to add to it an explanation that she was willing to bring this rather disheveled-looking man into church because of the love of Jesus, that it wasn't just enough to hug him. Now, of course, there are situations where we need to speak. One of the things I loved about teaching the Alpha Course for so many years in my last church was every year the chance was presented to me time and again to say it all again. All those things about Jesus that really mattered. It was one of the biggest privileges of my life to just keep talking about that year after year after year. We need to tell and we need words. Of course we do. After my wife died, people seemed to think that I didn't want to talk about her. They mentioned someone say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sure, you don't, I'm sure you, you don't maybe want, want to be reminded about that. The reality for me was and still is that she was all I wanted to talk about. And I didn't want others to forget her, so I talked about her. And so we should be the same about Jesus. We don't want the world to forget, so we need to talk. Witness involves talk, but... The character of this talking is really important to grasp. The talking is witness. It is testimony. And the one essential requirement for you to be a witness is that you saw what happened. When I was minister in Seaview, Sea we lived in Waterloo Gardens, which is off the Antrim Road, and... Um, one evening, someone came up the street with a baseball bat and smashed as many front windows of cars as they could manage to do before somebody noticed that they had done it. And uh, the first thing that alerted me to it were all these car alarms going off in the street. I thought, what on earth is going on? And just as I realized that, my son Matthew, who had been upstairs in the bedroom, ostensibly doing his homework, which I doubt very much, but sitting at the window of the bedroom doing his homework, saw this young guy come up the street with the baseball bat and attack a couple of cars. Fortunately, mine was in the driveway, okay, or this would have been a much more meaningful story as far as I'm concerned. But the windows of the cars he broke were not mine. And so, I mean, obviously we went out to the street, we talked to the neighbor next door, they called the police. When the police came, the only person the police wanted to speak to was my son Matthew, because he was the only one who actually saw it, the only one who could bear testimony. No one else saw it. And that's an essential quality of witness, that we have experienced the thing we are talking about. The disciples typified what they were doing when questioned by the Sanhedrin after Jesus left them as, quote, talking about what they had seen and heard. It was testimony. 
It wasn't a theological lecture. It wasn't something they learned in college. It was something they saw and heard with their own eyes and ears. They claimed to be witnesses. And that was the character of my talking about my wife after she died. I wasn't talking about somebody I learned about in a book. I learned about loads of people in books. I love books. I read books all the time. And I might wax lyrical about somebody, and you might think maybe I knew them when actually all I did was read a book. But the difference was when I talked about Christine, I was talking about someone I had seen and heard. I was a witness. And that can be our problem here too. Because when we emphasize that what Jesus called us to be was witnesses, we're not just emphasizing the fact that there are times when we need to tell it. When we need to explain why we believe what we believe. We need to try to persuade other people that Jesus loves them. That he can forgive them and renew them and change their lives. We need words to do that. But it can sometimes be a problem for us because not only are we bereft of the powerful overflowing presence of the Holy Spirit, but we have seen so little of Jesus ourselves. It has been so long in our lives since we last felt his presence, since we last heard his voice, since we last were aware of him walking with us or, to be more accurate, us walking with him. And the problem about witness and testimony is it's only effective, it's only meaningful if you're talking about something you have experienced yourself. Mostly our problem is that we need our eyes to be open to see the Jesus who is already there. He made a promise about that. He said he would be. If we haven't seen him and heard him, it's not Jesus' fault. It's not because he's absent. Not only do we need to ask God that the Holy Spirit might flow into our lives to give us the power and strength and resources, the overflowing presence of God that we need to reach a hungry world, but... We also need to ask that same Holy Spirit to open our ears and eyes to hear and see what the Lord is doing right here among us right now. Because Jesus called us to be a witness, not just to talk about stuff we read in books, even if that's a great book like the Bible, but also to talk about how the Word of God in the Scriptures has been lived out and experienced in our own lives. Overflowing testimony. And the last thing is this, succession. The last thing we need to remember about being witnesses is that we are not the first witnesses. We come late to the testimony. Jesus handed out these instructions that we're talking about nearly 2,000 years ago. And before us have come, many have come and gone the writer to Jewish Christians in the first century, having summarized what those who went before suffered and achieved, says this in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The witness doesn't start with us, and it probably won't end with us. We are part of a succession of people going back over several thousand years 
who knew the Lord and who are out there in the world talking about him. We are not the first. We will not be the last. I'm privileged to have been a witness since I gave my life to the Lord Jesus at eight years of age. And, and very soon after that, heard God's call to ministry. But I wasn't the first in my family. Before me came my dad. And before my dad came my granddad who worked in the shipyard but who preached in all the mission halls around East Belfast that used to take my dad with him when he was just a boy. I am not the first, nor am I the last, because right now in the center of Belfast and May Street, my son will be preaching just like I am. He is the witness that is carrying on. We are in a succession. And that means we must not fail. You're not the first, we will not be the last, but there must not be a gap. We are called in this moment to stand up, to become witnesses where we are, to seek God's blessing and presence so that this collection and fellowship of his people become a place where others find faith in Jesus Christ. Being part of a succession is not easy. In the movie 300, which tells the story of the Spartans and, and of their struggle uh, in ancient Greece, towards uh, in the middle or halfway through or so of the movie, um, there, there is a man, one of, one of the, the Spartans, whose name is Ephialtes of Trachis, and, and he comes to Leonides, who is the leader of, of the Spartans, and he volunteers for the army. And Leonidas looks at him, and he is disabled. He's a hunchback. And he's courageous, and he's valiant. He wants to fight for his people. He wants to, to redeem the, the reputation of his father who had left Sparta and gone away. And, and, and that's why he wants to serve in the army, and he's willing to do it. And Leonidas says no to him. It becomes a significant moment in the movie because he goes on to betray his people subsequently. Why did Leonidas say, say no the whole strategy that the Spartans have was dependent on holding the line. You had to be able to hold a shield above your head. And all those in the front line held the shield at a certain angle, and the shields joined together, forming a, basically an impenetrable wall for their enemies. The problem was that if the, that wall failed in one place, the whole wall failed. And Ephialtes was not able, because of his disability, to hold the shield high enough to be part of the line. And that's why Leonidas said no. And I was thinking about that. I was reflecting on the fact I, I, I began uh, when I came to you the first Sunday talking about one of the churches, seven churches in Revelation, chapters two and three of Revelation. And it occurred to me when I was thinking about that that there were all sorts of different reasons why the Lord was, was displeased with the churches that he, he wrote to there, six of the seven at any rate. And times whenever he was saying to them, you know, if you don't change, if you don't respond to what I'm saying, I'll come and I'll take the lampstand away. And we think about all the reasons that are mentioned there in Revelation 2 to 3 about why this was going to happen. But at the end of the day, I think there was just one reason. The lampstand was going to be taken away because they couldn't hold the, they couldn't hold the line. 
They could no longer hold up the shield. They, they were no longer able to act and live and testify like the people of God, and so someone else would have to take a stand in their place. Last two verses of Bishop Houghton's hymn facing a task unfinished say this. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition to you we yield our powers. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired Saviour whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us. From lethargy awake. Forth on your errands send us to labour for your sake. We must not fail. It's not just that we lack the overflowing presence of the Spirit and we need to ask God for it. It's not just that at times we cannot testify for to be truthful. Our experiences of God are so meager and at times so absent we have so little to talk about and so little to share. But the biggest thing of all is that we're part of, of a succession. And if we can't do it, God will find someone else who will. We must not fail. We must not fail at worship we must not fail at community, but above all else, men and women, young people, we must not fail at witness. We must not break the succession. We must take our stand. We must become those who testify about Jesus to a world that desperately needs to hear. We need to put our arms around unclean people in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. I just want to take a wee minute as we wait on God. I want to invite His Spirit to press home this, this message that Jesus called us to be His witnesses. Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We want to allow that same Spirit to press into our hearts what that means right now to admit our need of a fresh anointing from him and to, to be willing to seek it, whatever it costs, whatever discomfort it requires, to be willing to seek that overflowing, to be hungry for the experience of God to be renewed in our lives so we can genuinely testify to what God is doing and has done. And above all else, take our place in the succession of believers from the first day until this. Hold up the shield and keep the line. Father God, we are open in our hearts to admit that we have failed. That in our own inadequacy and unworthiness, our sin and our cowardice at times, we have failed to be the witnesses you called us to be. We struggle to remember the last time that we were there when someone came to faith in you. We do not really have significant plans as to how 
we can get out there and win other people to your kingdom. We ask for your forgiveness, O Lord, and for your fresh, empowering zeal to fall upon us that we might take our stand in the noble succession of those from the very first day until now have been telling the world who Jesus is. Anoint us, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for past failures. Electrify and enthuse this company of your people to reach this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to read from God's Word just now, um, and this is the book of Revelation, and it's the first chapter. We're going to break into that chapter at verse 9 and read through um, most of the rest of the chapter. So this is God's Word. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And ending at verse 19, the Lord will bless his truth uh, to our hearts. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Since as far back as I can remember, church has mattered to me. I came across a hymn written by Timothy Dwight quite a long time ago. Um, and there are two verses in that hymn that really sum up for me what I feel about church. Dwight's hymn says this, I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear, as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. I guess that's how I feel about church. And I know that that is wholly uncommon. That most people don't feel like that about church for all sorts of reasons. But I was once consoled when I was reading Carol Wimber's biography of her husband, John, 
Uh, and in the biography, she tells a story of, of what used to happen when John worked for the Church Planting uh, Foundation, which was part of Fuller Theological Seminary in the United States. And as part of his research uh, into church growth and church planting, he and another one of his colleagues used to visit different churches each weekend all across the United States. And the churches were from all different sorts of backgrounds, okay, as you can imagine. And they would go and they would attend Sunday worship and they would, they would maybe spend some time chatting to some of the folks worshiping there. And after every single visit to every single church in every single town, John's colleague would turn to him and say, this is a great church. If I lived in this city, I would come to this church. Didn't matter who it was, didn't matter where it was, basically every church he came across, he loved and so I don't feel so alone when I read a story like that because I think here's somebody else who really likes church. And I, I love churches. And I really don't care what the badge is over the door. Presbyterian, Anglican, Vineyard, Hillsong, Baptist. I don't really care. And in coming here among you, if I'm to help and succeed in helping your leadership to lead you towards renewal and future usefulness in Christ Church, I need to convince you all that what happens to Christ Church matters, that it's important. And three Sundays later in October, uh, I can't be here the next couple of Sundays because I had prior engagements in a couple of different churches, but in the remaining three Sundays in October, I hope to talk in a bit more detail about what matters about church. But I wanted to start today by asking the simple question, why does church matter? We'll talk about what matters later, but this morning just to ask the question, why do I need to convince you, if you're not already convinced, that what happens to Christ church matters? Well, in one way, the answer to that question, of course, is easy, why church matters. Um, in the New Testament, the word church, if you, if you look at when it occurs, particularly in the writings of Paul, where the word church occurs, it is only ever qualified in one of two ways in the New Testament. The first way in which it is qualified is where it is found. The church in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Rome, and so on. And the other way by which it is qualified is by whose it is. You get them both, for example, when Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth. There's the two qualifiers. And they're the only two qualifiers. We shouldn't be qualifying church in any other way. We shouldn't be giving it other badges. There are only two. The first is where it is, and the second is whose it is. This is God's church, and that's why it matters. It isn't ours. I know we talk about church, so this is my church. Or would you like to come to my church this Sunday? You know, and, and, and I did it all the time when I was minister in, in, in Carn Money. I kind of referred to it as my church, but of course it's not mine. It wasn't mine. And Christ's church isn't mine. It isn't yours. It belongs to God. And in the opening sequence of the expanding vision of things which John received on the Isle of Patmos, John is gently reminded of this reality, that this is God's work. He's in exile from his beloved brothers and sisters in the church at Ephesus where he was a leader. He's on the island of Patmos and on a clear day, 
on that island, you could see across the water to Ephesus. Part of the tribulation and trial of John's exile was that he could see the place where he most wanted to be, where the people whom he loved were. But he couldn't be there. And so God reminds him and us in this book, the final book of the scripture, he reminds him and us why the church in the seven cities of what we now call Turkey and the church meeting in Belfast Bible College matter. I want to suggest three simple things. Why does Christ's church, why do these churches in Asia Minor matter? First one is this. This church matters because Jesus walks among us. John, in his own words, says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In his isolation, he is alone, and yet here in this isolation, he hears, he hears a voice. You know how that happens. You know, I, I was down at my caravan, Castle Rock, preparing for a weekend of teaching I was doing in Port Stewart Baptist a couple of weeks ago, and I would have wandered down to the cafe in the town for lunch some days, and my, the object of the exercise was, it's, you know, it's, it's now September, nobody else is around, thank goodness, and I sit down quietly to enjoy a bite of lunch on my own, and just as I'm about to sit down to the table, I hear a voice saying, hello, John. <laughs> oh, it's just a disastrous moment, and so I do what you naturally do in those circumstances. I turned around to see who it was, and it was... It was someone that I'd known from way back when I was minister in Seaview, and there they were, there she was with her daughter, and they were touring the coast and so on. So inevitably, my quiet lunch turned into an extended conversation, which wasn't really what I'd planned. John is completely alone on the island of Patmos. He's in a spirit of worship on the Lord's day, and a voice speaks to him, and he does what all of the rest of us would have done in the same circumstances. He turns around to see who it is who is talking to him. And as he looks, he sees it's Jesus who is there, although he doesn't initially recognize him. But as he looks at the person speaking to him, he sees that this person, who is Jesus, is located among seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's where Jesus is. That's where John sees him among these churches. John is not there. He is on the island of Patmos, but Jesus is there walking among the churches. And where else would he be? Where else would you expect to find him? My brother Peter retired recently from ministry as well, and he's living with his wife down in Port Stewart. They've had a holiday home there for a number of years and they, they, they're there. So, so if I'm down on the coast, I'll usually run over to see him, to call with them, maybe get fed and other things like that. And so I, I call over with them, you know. And so when I go, um, and, and, and in some ways, I, I usually don't bother going. If it's in the evening, I don't bother going to the house because I know where he'll be. He'll be sitting on the promenade in the car downtown like all old people do, watching, watching everybody else up and down and the younger guys in pimped out cars of various kinds raking up and down the front. I know that's where he'll be. He just loves it. And sure enough, the last night I went over to Port Stewart, I, I decided I better ring him before I go. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm down on the front. Of course he was. That's where, he, that's where you'll find him. Where would you expect to find Jesus? Where would you expect to find him? For Jesus, it was always where God's people were to be found. Where was he when he went missing as a child of 12 years of age? 
And his parents were desperate to try and locate him. Where did they find him? They found him amongst God's people in the temple. Where else would Jesus be? And here in John's vision, he is among the churches. Now, I know that you can meet the Lord in a thousand places. I know that he dwells in all creation. I know that there is not a square foot of earth on this planet where his rip does not run and where his presence cannot be experienced. But I also know that he has uniquely promised to be here. That he walks among the churches. Something is available of the Lord in the presence of his people, especially when they are at worship, which is not to be found anywhere else in the world. Something about that. And if we are to draw people to Christ in our ministry as the people of this church, then one of the ways that has to be happening is in this space at this time. This is what it's for. There's a unique promise around this gathering. And we need to lean into that promise. I said earlier, I used to teach here. I taught here for about 12 years. I taught church history to degree students in the college. And over the years, I, I taught quite a lot, a lot of students. Some of you ended up in ministry and missionaries and all sorts of other things. One of the students that I taught here ended up working in a, in a Christian bookshop in Belfast part-time uh, after he graduated. And a few years ago, I was in the bookshop one day, and, and he said to me, John, you never guess what has happened. I said, what is it, Campbell? He said, my brother and his wife are going to your church. I said, oh, that, that's good. Did they come from another church? No, no, he said, they haven't been going to church at all. That's what's so exciting about it. And they're going to your church. And so I said, okay, that, that, that's really good. So I'll try and figure out who they were. Actually, it wasn't that difficult because the two brothers looked like peas in a pod. So the next Sunday at church, I looked around and I could spot them right away without even having to try. And I went to speak to them after service. I called around to see them and uh, they had a small family. And, uh, and I, I said, you know what, what brought you to church? And their story was that they, they, they had a couple of girls and the girls went to the girls' brigade in our church. But... The, um, the parents didn't come to church at all. And then the girls' brigade did a special Christmas event. It was a Christmas kind of musical thing, um, underneath the shining star or something like that it was called. It wasn't that amazing, if I'm honest. But anyway, being the girls' brigade and being all these kids, okay, like all their parents and all their grannies and grandas and everybody else, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, everybody was there. The church was bunged. There was about 700 people at this event. And amongst the people at the event was, was, were the parents of these two girls. And they came along, and it was, a, it was an evening, it was, it was a kind of a Christmas story woven around modern uh, contemporary worship. And it, it was really well done. It included dance and songs and, and other sorts of things like that. It, 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 was actually, it, was actually, it was actually really good. But at, uh, so they came along, and they watched, and they really enjoyed the event. Um, and when, at the end of the evening, when they came out of the church building, out into the car park, they looked at each other and they said, well, what was that in there? And they, they couldn't figure it out. They said, there's something special about that place. And we made a decision, he said, there and then, that we would start going back to worship in that building. Over time, they came on our Alpha course, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when they did, they realized that what they had experienced at that gathering, the first night they were there, was the presence of God, and they'd never experienced it in their lives before. And it drew them to Christ, drew them to church. 
Jesus walks among us. That's why this matters. Because this is the place where other people can be drawn into the presence of God, find out what it means to follow Christ. Jesus walks among us. Second thing is that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. To John, the Lord Jesus gives a letter for each of the seven churches, the seven that we've mentioned, okay? Now, probably they each heard each other's letter, all right? Because the seven churches are listed in a way in which a messenger traveling from Patmos would have circulated around them. That's the way the road would have taken you around the seven churches in the order that you read about them in Revelation chapter 1, okay? And, and the messenger had one document, obviously, not seven. We call that document the book of Revelation, and he would have read the whole document in each of the seven churches. So each of them got to hear what Jesus said to all the others. And in each letter, the same phrase is to be found at least once, and in three cases, twice. For example, in, in, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2, in the letter there we read in verse 2, Jesus says, I know your deeds. Jesus sees what they're doing, bad and good. And then something else in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander. Jesus also sees their circumstances and their needs. He is the God who sees. I don't know if you know the modern oratorio by, or, uh, by Kathy, Kathy Lee Gifford and Nicole C. Mullen. It's called The God Who Sees. Um, it tells the story of the experiences of various biblical characters, starting with Hagar. You can, you can watch it on YouTube. If you just go onto YouTube and search for The God Who Sees, it'll come up. It's, it's a beautifully recorded video. It lasts about 12 minutes, and, and, and in this, Nicole sings this song entitled, The God Who Sees. And it begins with the story of Hagar and moves on to various other biblical characters. And Hagar, if you remember the story, finds herself alone and completely destitute. And the song says this, she's crying in the desert. She's lost in her despair. She thinks nobody loves her. Hagar thinks nobody's there. But God says, I will be a ring of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. And the power of my presence will bring her to her knees. And I will lift her up again. For I am the God who sees. The God who is among us knows. He sees. And you might think, well, like John, you're stating the blindingly obvious here. Because if he's present, obviously he sees. Well, not necessarily so. Um, when my wife was alive on Mondays, we often looked after a couple of our grandchildren, and uh, we would go out with them, take them various places, including to the park. I have to tell you, I hate the park. My, my, one of my daughters is here. She can testify to the fact that throughout her upbringing and the, the, the other three siblings in my family, if I could possibly resist going to the park, I always did, okay? So we would take a couple of our grandchildren there, and one, one Monday we took two of my grandchildren to the park in Carrickfergus down at the front. And uh, so the, the kids were, were playing. Lucy was climbing up the kind of rope climbing frame thing and Caleb was on the swings or something like that. And um, so I was supposed to be watching them, all right? Uh, my wife, Christine, was there. And actually, Hannah was there that day too. So, but I was supposed to be playing my part in watching them. And then 
What actually happened was, and this was taken a photograph of and subsequently posted to Facebook, and I've never been allowed to forget it. At one stage of the day, this was a Monday morning, I'd, been, I'd preached three times the day before, I was knackered. And at one stage, while I was supposed to be watching my grandchildren, I fell asleep on a bench. <laughs> I was actually asleep, okay? And my daughter kind of took a photograph of it and immediately posted it to Facebook. So what you would know is never entrust me with your grandchildren under any circumstances. It wouldn't be a good idea, all right? So, um, so I was there, okay, and I was meant to be watching, but actually I didn't, see, I didn't see what Lucy and Caleb did for maybe five or ten minutes. Jesus is among us, but he's not asleep on the bench. Scripture says he sees, he knows. And when you're alone, that matters. I don't know your personal circumstance or the personal circumstances of others in your friendship circle. But almost certainly there are people in this building or watching online right now or people whom you could invite to be here who do feel alone and who need to see, who need to know that somebody sees and somebody knows. Since my wife passed away, I'd spend quite a lot of time with widows and widowers. I, I, I kind of, it's Quite, quite good because there's so much you don't have to explain when, when you're with somebody else who's been through your circumstances. And I was with uh, a, a widower, a, a man called Ian, who's roughly my age, whose who's, um, wife died in similar circumstances to mine. And we meet every month or so just for a cup of coffee. And I was with him the other day. I had the privilege of bringing him and his wife in a membership in our church um, about six months or so before she passed away and they, they, they came to know Christ as their saviour and it was, just, it was just a lovely thing and they, they were actually at communion just uh, for the first time really just a matter of, of weeks before Liz died and uh, I, I meet with Ian and we were chatting the other day and he was a bit down and he, he said to me, he said, I don't, I don't know how you have faith now. He said, how, how, you know, how does your faith even work in this circumstance? How, how can you be who you are and do what you do and say what you say. He said, I, I, I don't get it. My response to that is because I don't understand what happened. But I know somebody who knows. And I know somebody who sees. And it makes all the difference in the world. And John sees Jesus who is among God's people. But he also sees a Jesus who sees us. And that's why this place matters too that this is a place where people can discover that there is someone who actually knows, knows their circumstance, knows their pain, knows their need. Somebody cares eternally. And that's why this place matters, because there are people who need to know that. And finally, the Jesus who walks among us and who sees us is the Jesus who addresses us. John hears a voice. He turns to see who it is. And he sees Jesus. But not like he has ever seen Jesus before. What he sees sucks all the air out of his lungs. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. He speaks talks to John and his intention is to say an awful lot more and he tells John to write down what he's going to say for the sake of the churches for us and that's amazing in itself 
Not, mind you, that the book is easy to understand. I'm always consoled by the fact that John Calvin, um, the reformer, uh, who had an incredible teaching and writing ministry uh, as part of what he did in, in, uh, in the Reformation of the Church in Geneva. He preached on every single book of the Bible and wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. And he said he didn't do that because he didn't have the key to understand it. That always makes me feel good. If John Calvin couldn't understand it, then I don't feel so bad about the fact that I don't understand it either, really. But I don't doubt if anybody really does fully. But here was this here were these things that Jesus was revealing. John was asked to write them down and to, to place them in a position where they would be of help to the churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and so on, and also to us. But here's the thing. It's, it's really special that we have the Scriptures. They are God's Word to us. But wouldn't you have liked to have heard that voice for yourself? However amazing it is to have the text in your hand, wouldn't you like to hear the voice? And God still speaks. What authority do I have for saying that? I think back over the years of preaching in church or leading an alpha course. I couldn't tell you how many times over those years the people who mostly were not Christians when they came into an act of worship or started out in an alpha course would have a conversation with me at some point after a while and, and they would all say exactly the same thing. They would say, how did you know all those things about me? I was sitting in a sermon and time and time again people have said to me, it felt to me like I was the only person in the building. Nobody else was here. This was for me. This was a direct word for me. How did you know that? Well, the simple answer to the question, of course, was that I didn't know it. And that though I was speaking, they weren't hearing me speaking. They were hearing someone else altogether. They were hearing the voice of God himself. The Holy Spirit was at work. God was speaking. And he still speaks. But if we are not careful, we will lose the capacity to hear him. And, and that's really important. Jesus repeats the message about hearing seven times. Once in each of the letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You need to hear me speaking, Jesus said. That's the reason why I'm talking. I need you to listen and I need you to hear. But we are not used to the interruption of the Spirit's voice. And if we're not careful, we can get to a point where we no longer hear that voice. And the powerful word of God no longer stirs something new inside of us. That's a really sad moment. But it's true, we, we, we become bound up with a book and we don't realize that that book is a tool by which as we study it and, and look into it and hear it preached and proclaimed, that what we're actually listening for is for God speaking afresh to us in that moment. We're not used to that. One of my members in, in, in the church uh, did a lot of traveling around and he used to listen to audio books in the car and he gave me one of them one time. He said, you should listen to this in the car. It's really good. So I thought I'd put it on. It's by a really well-known, popular modern author. It's a very, very good book. And I, I popped a, the CD into the car. When I was driving around, I would listen to it. Do you know what I discovered? 
I discovered that I could have been listening to it for half an hour. At the end of the half an hour, I couldn't tell you a single thing that I heard in, in that. But if I had had the book in my hand, sitting at home in a chair, I could have remembered virtually everything I would have read. This was not the way in which I normally digested that kind of writing. And so I, I found the audio book just simply didn't work for me. And I, I've never tried one since, if I'm being honest. I, I'd rather have a book in my hand. If I'm absolutely pushed, I'll work with a Kindle, but I'd rather really have paper and print. Because there's something about it, and I can listen, and I can hear. And sometimes, you know, we get like, we can get like that too with the scriptures. You know, we get that, and we have our devotions day by day, or we come to church, and we read a text, and that's okay. But actually, we're meant to be doing another form of listening as well beyond the grammatical sense of this text that I have in my hand is the voice of the living God. And wouldn't you want to hear that voice? Not, not just read it on paper, but wouldn't you want to hear that voice speaking into your circumstance and telling you what God's concern is for you, what you need to know of him and what you need to know about yourself? And this is the place where Jesus is among us. And this is the place where Jesus sees us. And this is the place where Jesus addresses us himself by the power of the Spirit. And that's why this matters. That's my dream for here. As Stephen said a moment or two ago, no conclusions have been drawn, no decisions have been made. I barely... I haven't even started dipping into the database yet, never mind anything else. But for me, not, not predetermining any decisions of the future about what happens to the shape of this place, but for me, this place matters. This place matters because Jesus walks among us. Jesus sees us and Jesus addresses us. And the people who are sitting here and watching online right now along with all the other people we could invite to become a part of who we are, need those three things. They need to experience the presence and the care and the voice of our master. And that's why this matters. I'm going to use a prayer to conclude our worship, which kind of stems out of some of the things we've been thinking about this morning. Um, after my wife passed away, I was kind of clearing up some of the stuff that she had. And over the years in ministry, she must have led, I don't know how many hundred women's meetings, which she always hated doing. She never thought she was qualified to do. She hated upfront stuff. Um, and what I've discovered was something I didn't really know that much, which was that she had over the years kept notebooks. And in the notebooks, she had written every prayer that she had ever used to lead a meeting. And there was one of the prayers that was on a kind of slip of paper, fell out of a book. And I found it, and in some ways, I've, I, I kind of framed it, put it up on the wall at home, and it says so much about her faith, I think, and so much about what I also believe about church and about um, who the Lord is. I'm going to use the prayer that she wrote to conclude our worship. Um, the prayer begins with a quote from a, a song uh, which came out a number of years ago, um, and uh, it, it's a hymn. It starts with that, and then it goes into a prayer. And um, I'd like us to use these words as a way to respond to what we've been thinking about in worship. So let's pray. God is here as we, his people, meet to offer praise and prayer. May we find in fuller measure what it is in Christ we share. Here, as in the world around us, all our varied skills and arts with the coming of his Spirit 
into open minds and hearts. We thank you, our Father, for your readiness to hear and to forgive and for your great love to us in spite of our unworthiness. We thank you for the many blessings we enjoy which are above our deserving, hoping, or asking. You have been so good to us in our ingratitude and forgetfulness of you. For your patience, gentleness, and constancy, we bow our heads just now in humble thankfulness of heart. We have come to worship you who are infinite love, infinite compassion, and infinite power, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Accept our praise and worship, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you all, guys. God bless.